Alright, we are still in 1 Peter 5. We're quickly coming to the end of 1 Peter. And the overlying theme that we've used to describe uh, this book. Hang on. That's better. This mic is like right in my face. Uh, the overlying theme that we've used to describe this letter is a life that demands a gospel explanation. Like what you see Peter laying throughout this letter is imploring these believers what he wants them to do, what is still true for us today, is how can we live our lives in such a way we're so distinct, so set apart, so different, not so different and weird that we want to, somebody wants to put us in a circus or like an exhibit, but we're so deep, distinct, and set apart and different that it requires us to give a gospel explanation for why we do what we do. Like it's, it's not to push people away with so weird. Some people will. Some people are, are going to be offended by the gospel. That's going to happen. Peter, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. But others will be drawn in. Like, why, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? And our hope is, as Peter uh, wrote in 1 Peter 2.12, that we would conduct ourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander us as evildoers, thinking that the good that we do is actually evil, they will see our good works and glorify God on the day he visits and we'll have opportunities like 1 Peter 3.15 to give a reason for the hope that we have. And we do this with meekness and respect and gentleness. So that they too will believe. And not just be pushed away in, in an uncaring way. And so we've had all kinds of examples and ways in which Peter's laid this out. Today we come to another way in which we live life that could cause people who are far from God. People who claim to be Christians but are only religious. To really sit up and take notice and that's how we deal with anxieties. And what I hope and pray in the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is at work this morning to help us to see how we can demonstrate a humble trust in God by casting our anxieties on our powerful and caring Father. And look at 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Now, we looked at verse 5 last week, that section header you might have in your Bible doesn't exist, even the verse numbers don't exist in the original language. So I wanted to see the link of humility between verses 5 and 7. This idea of humility in verse 5 is carried forward by a command in verse 6. And it is a command. Humble yourselves, he says. It's actually a passive imperative. So imperative is a command, like an exclamation mark. And it's passive. In other words, it's not something you're doing. It's being done to you. So literally, it could read, be humble under the mighty hand of God. Let this be done to you. By who? By the mighty hand of God. Language drawn from the Old Testament, where God's mighty hand delivered his people from Egypt and other enemies. So then, he says in verse 6, he may exalt you at the proper time, which is forward-looking. So that on that day that will come, when all things are made right, all things are clear, Christ has returned, all these on heaven and earth are bound before King Jesus, it will become obvious to everyone that all along you should have been worshiping this king. Because he's the one true most high king. And all who have been humbly worshiping him and loving him and living for him, on that day will be exalted with him. 
Like, yes, all along, these were the people that were doing it right. That though humility and, and meekness and these qualities that we see in the New Testament aren't valued by much of our culture, they're highly valued in the kingdom of God. And so we choose, by God's grace, to be humbled by His mighty hand now so that on the, on the end times, when the end comes, when Christ returns, we will rule and reign with Him. We will be exalted with Him. Being humbled by God's mighty hand is part of what is essential to genuine humility, seeing ourselves correctly. There is a God who is mighty, and He is Him. And we are not Him. Never will be, not even close. So that's essential to humility, but is that enough? Humility can be a tricky thing to pin down. As C.S. Lewis wrote in the screw tape letters, an imagined conversation between demonic forces, how to trip up Christians, summarizing here. He tells one thing into the other. As soon as a believer believes that he has truly reached a state of humility, then send him a sense of pride about how humble he is. And he will quickly lose his sense of humility. Like, can we ever have confidence in how humble we are? Or do we lose it with our confidence? Like, how do we know if we're humble enough? And if we're not humble enough, how do we get more humble if it's so important? Some associate humility with personalities. So someone uh, more extroverted, they're obviously less likely to be humble. Someone more introverted, more likely to be humble. But is that even accurate? Can't you also be prideful in different personalities? Is humility a personality trait or an aspect of someone's character? A virtue, a biblical virtue to someone's character. So then, what does it look like for humility to show up in all the different personalities that are out there? Humility is an absolute essential to our faith. Augustine, North African early church father, said that almost the whole of Christian teaching is humility. You can all be summed up with that one word. Thomas Aquinas thought that love was the highest of all Christian virtues, but humility, he said, was the beginning of all virtues. Humility was required for the Holy Spirit to work in us and bring about love and the other virtues. John Calvin said, there's no access to salvation unless all pride is laid aside and true humility embraced. And Martin Luther saw humility and faith as two sides of the same coin, both essential to our salvation. One author writes that humility requires a proper estimation of oneself. We don't overestimate our abilities, our status, our standing. There's also a proper unconcern about yourself. You're not overly consumed about your status and your standing. You're not self-absorbed about where you're at in this world and what other people think about you. There's also a sense of owning your personal limitations, like being okay with the fact you are limited. Because we all are. You might describe someone who is humble as someone who is quick to laugh at themselves because they don't take themselves that seriously. Someone who's quick to admit when they've made a mistake because they realize that everyone makes mistakes, including myself. Someone who's typically, who typically positions himself as a learner rather than a teacher. I can learn from anyone about anything. I don't have to be the expert in the room. Someone who delights in the success of others. There's no sense of envy or jealousy. You're genuinely happy when other people succeed, even 
if y'all are on the same corner doing the same thing. Someone who doesn't posture or pretend to have knowledge or abilities that he lacks. Like, it's okay if you know that I don't know. Someone who reveals their fears and vulnerabilities. Not with everyone, but with people that are safe and people that they trust. They can be open about what they're really afraid of and be vulnerable with those people. Someone who asks for help when they need it. Because I'm needy. You're needy. There are times we need help. It doesn't just have to be us figuring it out. I have this shirt that I wear to work out in or, or, work, or, or work in the yard in. And it basically says, it's a really comfortable shirt, but it says 99 district champs, 7-0, reigned junior high. And, you know, what kind of Uncle Rico wears a shirt from 24 years ago bragging about a junior high football state championship? And uh, I didn't play on that team, but it was my first year of teaching in school. Um, Jennifer and I just got married in May, and that fall I started teaching while she had another year of college to finish up. And my cousin happened to uh, teach at the school as well, and he was the head football coach. And he asked me, hey, you want to help me coach a football team? And I thought, I love football, and you get paid a little bit more, and I know that they coach, so yeah, sure, I'll help out. And I quickly realized that watching hours and hours of football my entire life did nothing to prepare me for coaching football. Like, I can know the rules and the strategies, but to teach technique, that's like a whole other level of knowledge I didn't have. So the first day of practice, uh, these 7th and 8th graders show up, and he gives me a yellow pad, and he tells me to go with this group of kids who uh, want to be offensive linemen or defensive linemen, I don't know, and evaluate, I think their three-point stance is what he told me to do. Now, if I was humble, I would have said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you demonstrate? Can you give me every specific detail about what I need to be looking for? But I wasn't humble. I was 22 years old, newly married, just became a teacher. I was only eight or nine years older than these kids. I was super insecure about being a guy who knew what he was doing, especially in front of other teachers, especially in front of these kids. So I'm like, okay. So I'm so lost, these kids are lined up. I, have, I, I can't even write their name on the notepad. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I never asked. I don't even know what I wrote down, I don't know what I told him, I just kind of went through the motions and, and hoped that he would figure out who needed to be on his team and in what positions. Because I didn't have the necessary humility. So that's, that's a picture of someone who's not humble. And I could I have many more of those stories I could share with you. But a picture of humility, William Carey, the father of modern missions. William Carey went to India in 1793 to start a work to share the gospel and translate the Bible into languages and dialects of the people groups he found there. He pleaded with the stubborn churches of England to send workers. And at that time, there was this version of hyper-Calvinism that were had this mentality about people who didn't know Jesus. Well, if God wants to save them, they'll get saved. And Carrie and others were like, actually, his plan to save them is sending us and people like us with the gospel because they can't be saved unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So eventually he went and took a team. He was seven years on the field before the first person became a Christian through his work. Seven years of laboring and laboring and laboring and sharing the gospel and learning the culture and learning the language before anyone professed faith in Christ. He spent another 28 years, him and his team, translating the entire Bible over 28 years into India's six major languages and, to a, and into another 209 languages and dialects. 
1818, they founded a theological college, Serampore College, that still exists today, 200 years later. That provides theological education for over 2,500 people who are, live in India. Much of southern India, especially the southwest side of, of India, is Christian because of this work that he and others started and God blessed. He also brought about social reforms, the abolition, abolition of infanticide, the abolition of widows burning themselves when their husbands died, and assisted suicide. Carrie was known for this phrase taken from Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. But on his 70th birthday, listen to what he wrote his son. I am this day 70 years old, a monument of divine mercy and goodness. Though on a review of my life, I find much, very much, for which I ought to be humbled in the dust. My direct and positive sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor as I ought. Notwithstanding all of this, I am spared till now, and I am still retained in his work. I trust for acceptance with him in the blood of Christ alone. That's me. One sure way to find and experience this kind of humility is found in one of the best ways to, to live life for which you will profit greatly is found in verse 6. After Peter tells us to humble ourselves, be humbled under God's mighty hand, verse 6, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Verse 6 in the original language is not a new sentence, but it's actually a participle modifying the previous sentence. So verse 6 depends on, verse 7 rather, depends on verse 6. In other words, how do you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand? Casting your cares on Him. Because He cares for you. He doesn't say if you want to be humble, talk down about yourself, demean yourself, degrade yourself, grovel, or be a quiet, mousy person. He says if you want to be humble, cast your cares upon Him. In the ESV, other translations, it says cast your anxieties on Him. Now I wonder if anyone in this room has any anxiety. Or anyone in our culture has any anxiety. We might be the most anxious nation on earth. And what we have in the Bible is a picture of how to live with anxiety in a way that is full of faith and trusting of God and His mighty hand to help. But there's a few other passages, and you can turn to these if you want, or I have them on the little bulletin thing or worship guide uh, if you want to look at them later. There's a few other passages that we, we need to look at to get a full picture that use this same exact word translated as cares or anxiety. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25, you, you can listen or turn to it quickly. Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or what your body, or, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky, they don't sow or weep or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you worth more than them? Can, you, uh, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildfires of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and burns into the furnace tomorrow, won't He do much more for you, O you of little faith? Verse 31, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the Gentiles, those who aren't God's people, eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And obviously there's a lot there, but the big picture idea that we can take away is that our Father provides the needs for the needs of His kids to such a degree, Jesus says, we don't have to live with anxiety over those needs being met. We, we are so set free. Not, not, this is spoken to a culture that lived hand to mouth. They didn't have freezers full of food. There weren't grocery stores in every corner full of food. There weren't social uh, structures in place like insurance or government assistance. None of that was in place like it is today. These are people who live from season to season, hand to mouth. And Jesus tells them, you can live with such trust in your Father to meet all of those needs. You don't have to live with worry. He is going to take care of it. In fact, we're so freed up. He says, just seek me. Live your life seeking me and my kingdom. And as you do that, I'll give you everything you need. Everything you need. And, and this room is, is, has plenty of older Christians who have strived to live that way for years and decades that can testify to that being a thousand percent true. In fact, I would say not only does God meet those needs, He actually goes over and beyond. He like throws a little lanyard on top of all that just because He loves us. He likes to blow them. We really don't have to live with anxiety and worry over our basic necessities. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, Paul writes, Don't worry about anything. <laughs> okay, what's left? Nothing. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So, so one active way that we can battle anxiety is through prayer and thanksgiving. Because worry, we feel like we're doing something. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, you're not really doing anything. You're really accomplishing nothing with worry. So I need to do something. Okay, pray. Pray and live a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. Take all the energy that you're using to pace the floor and to be in angst and to grind your teeth and to not sleep at night. Take all that energy and turn it into prayers. And, and prayers, of, prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude. And he tells us that if we do that, that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. And that's the language of a soldier on duty. Literally marching around our hearts and minds. Like Jesus himself marching around our hearts and minds as a soldier of peace to give us his peace. And there are also people in this room who have had to wrestle through a lot of stuff to get to those moments. Wrestle through anxiety, wrestle through worry. Really had to fight and work to trust Jesus, to, to call out to your soul. Oh soul, why are you so downcast? Trust in God. Like preaching to yourself, 
having other people preach to yourself. Even anxieties and worries that could be so great, they, we had to get help, like professional counseling. Sometimes even medical help. Because the worry and anxiety was so great that you almost physically could create space in your mind and heart to get to that point of trusting in Jesus. And we had to pay someone to provide counseling so that this designated person who's been trained and equipped to help you would set aside time in their schedule and time in your schedule for you to show up and, and bear your soul to this person so that they could apply truth to your life to help you over. And that's totally okay. Totally okay to, to need that or have a, a desire for that. People who have wounds and hurts and, and trauma in their past. But for a lot of people with a huge chunk of what we deal with, it's an issue of faith. And so praying instead of worrying, giving thanksgiving instead of worrying is, is all we really need to do. Because it's an issue of faith. Who and what we believe. Are we choosing to believe our fears? Are we choosing to give into the what is? Are we choosing to believe and see what is true, right, and good? Uh, another passage, last one, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Paul is uh, addressing these guys in the Corinthian church who kind of saw themselves as super apostles and they kind of downplayed Paul's apostleship. Don't listen to Paul, listen to us. So in, in this part of uh, 2 Corinthians, Paul's kind of laying out all the ways in which he has suffered and served the local church. It's almost like he's listing his credentials, but he's kind of doing it in a sarcastic way. Like, this is all that I've done. I've been shipwrecked, I've been flogged, I've been left for dead, I've been in prison, I've been left for Paul, I've been beaten up by robbers. Just this horrific list of things that Paul's endured to get the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Like, oh, it's just me, Paul has done this. That's all. And then he closes that list with verse 28. Not to mention other things, like there's more he couldn't share. Not to mention all the other things I could share on top of shipwreck and meat and fog and all that. He almost adds this as this is the biggest thing. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Forget about the flogging and the beatings and all those things. I live with this daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. That, that's the ESV. It's a lot of translations. The CSB, I think, does a better job. There's the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. This is, this is the same Paul who said, don't be anxious about anything. And now Paul is confessing, I live daily with this anxiety. So, so what is it, Paul? Are you practicing what you preach? Are you saying there's exceptions? Paul's not sharing like there's a loophole to living a life free of anxiety. He's saying there is a, a way to live with anxiety or concerns that is full of faith and not full of sin. And it's doing what he said in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Living a life of prayerful dependence on the work of God in you. And the work of God in other people. So there are anxieties that aren't simple. And you see that. And I like to do what the CSB does. I like to call them concerns. Like, I'm concerned about this. I'm praying about it. I'm trusting God about it. It's not paralyzing my faith. It's not causing me to sin. I'm just, I'm just trusting God with it. I'm praying and I'm giving it to Him. It's not a debilitating anxiety. It doesn't keep us from praying and trusting God to help and provide. It's simply the weight of leadership that Paul had because he cared. He cared about these people and these churches he planted and these people.
people we invested in. You want them to be okay. A healthy concern, not sinful anxiety or a lack of faith. There is a kind of anxiety that is simple in the sense that it's a lack of faith and trust in God. I know that might be hard for some to hear in our, our culture today. Maybe hard for some of you. Because it, it feels like in some ways we've been given permission to just live with anxiety. And it's okay. And it doesn't mean that all anxiety is so simple. Maybe you're actually doing good work with it. It's just a concern like Paul had. But there is a version of anxiety that, that is simple. Because you're, you're failing to trust who God is, what God has said, what God has promised, who He is to you, who He says you are, what He says about you. And instead of believing and trusting in those things, we're believing and trusting in lies. We're believing and trusting in fear. We're believing and trusting in the what ifs. And that is simple. All unbelief is sin. Right? It leads to sin. Sin is rooted in unbelief. And so, if we're struggling with a, a sinful version of anxiety, the good news of the gospel is you don't have to struggle with that. Like, run to Jesus for help and cleansing and forgiveness. Anxiety is rooted in a lack of trust or belief in God and His good provision and care for you. Repent of that. Turn from that. Say, I don't want to give in to those lies and those fears. I want to trust and believe in God. And if you need professional help to dig through the muck and the mire that's inside of you, because of all the things you've been through, and that can be true of everyone in this room, then get the, that kind of help. But, but even the goal of that, the goal of digging through all of that, for a Christian, is to lead you to Trust and belief in God. Not for you to trust in yourself more. Not for you to believe in yourself. Look how amazing I am. I've been through all this counseling. I've been through all this therapy. I have all these tools. I can do this on my own. No, that's sin. That's only going to lead to more anxiety because you can't do it perfectly. You can't do it long enough. You will wear down. You will break ultimate goal of even those who need professional help, even those, is to lead to more trust and belief in God. That's what he's after. And that's why if you see people for this kind of counseling, you need to make sure they are leading you to more trust and faith in God. More trust and faith in who he is. And not just more trust and faith in who you are. And we see this in this passage. First Peter, cast your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Cast, the word there is only used one other time in the New Testament, in Luke 19. The disciples cast their cloaks on the colt that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So we cast, we, we throw, and it's not a string attached, so we can pull it back. Right? We throw, and we get rid of it. Like yesterday, I was talking to Jennifer, she's doing something with her job. She's like really uh, kind of worried about it. Like it's um, something that um, uh, needed to be solved, but it can't be solved because it's a holiday weekend. So you can do nothing about it to Tuesday. Like I've done everything I can do. I just got to wait till Tuesday. These people go back to work and then I can get this resolved. So am I not going to worry about this all weekend and be consumed with it? Like I don't know. Are you? Like do this with me. Let's take this. Let's cast it. 
Like literally, the take is just casting. And as soon as we did it, I was like, was it like a boomerang? Yeah, pretty much. So you may have to cast it multiple times. There's no promise that casting it once is going to do the job. You may have to keep throwing it back on him. Luther said, pray and let God grow. It's a good way to test and know if your anxiety has become too much and potentially sinful. Is can you still pray or are you overwhelmed with worry? Like maybe you can preach the gospel to yourself and believe God's truth again and get to that place of peace. Or maybe you're so paralyzed by the weight of what you're dealing with that you need the community of God's people to preach the gospel to you. To get to that place of belief and trust and a place of peace again. The good thing of casting is like throwing a ball. Like maybe think of a bowling ball. You let that ball go down the bowling lane. And what do you do? You let it go. And we're like, eh, we're trying to control the ball with our body. Even though we let it go, we're trying to make that ball do something that it won't do because you've already let it go. You just got to let it go. Once you let it go, it's gone. Don't try to control it. Don't try to bring it back. Just let it go. Cast it. Get rid of it. Like maybe a better image for us is from Micah 7, where uh, Micah writes in verses 18 and 19, Who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our sins. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. When our holy, mighty Father in heaven, the great Almighty God, treats our sins as though he's casting them into the sea. They're not an official line attached to a rod and reel. He's not going to bring them back up. When God casts our sins to the depths of the sea, they're, they're intended to sink into the deep darkness of the sea and never be brought up again. So when we think of casting, we can do that with our anxieties. Casting our cares and anxieties. And where do we do it? Not just into the ether, but he says... On him. Why do we cast them on him? Because he can handle it. You know who can't handle it? Us. We cast it on him because he can handle it. Who is he? Well, we just saw him, verse 6. He is the mighty God. He has the power of the universe, he has all the power of all power ever in creation. He can handle it. And to just make this a little more fully mind-blowing, verse 7, not only is the great Almighty God, but we can cast our anxieties on Him because He cares about you. More than the birds and the grass, He cares about us enough to know every hair on our head, enough to capture our tears in the bottle, Psalm 56. Close to the broken heart, Psalm 34. There's no aspect of who you are. There's no fear, no wound, no hurt, no sorrow. Of suffering that you have or am walking through that he doesn't care about. It's never too small. It's never too far in the past. It's never so dark or hard. It's never for, too much for him to know. There's nothing about you you can reveal to him that's going to make him run away from you. He's just going to run towards you to embrace you even more. For him to care, for him to have the power and compassion to help. He cares for you. Almighty God, your Father in heaven, cares about you. Like, just let that sink in. 
about you. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're dealing with, whatever the struggle is, whatever it looks like, it seems overwhelming to you. He's like, bring it to me. Bring it to me. I can handle it. You can't handle it. How much does he care for us? Romans 8.32. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not also grant us everything? If he loves us enough to give us his son, he's flung open the storehouse of heaven. He said, you can have me, all of me. What else do you need? What else do you need? I will give it to you. If it means you will seek me and seek my kingdom, love me and be loved by me. I've given you myself, you have me. You can walk through all the mess of this world hand in hand with the mighty God of the universe who knows you and cares about you and only wants to give you good. We've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series with Sarah and the Littles. We did that with the older girls and now we're kind of restarting it for the younger kids. And one of the overlooked books I think that should be read first is The Magician's Nephew. It shows the creation of Narnia where Aslan, the Christ figure, the God figure, is singing a creation song. But the bad guys in the book, the queen who would become the witch and the line of the witch in the wardrobe, and the magician, they hate this song. It's not beautiful to them. It's a horrible sound and they just want to get away. In fact, when Aslan speaks, they don't hear the words of a lion speaking to creation. They just hear the roarings of a lion. They don't have ears for Aslan. And the queen retreats and hides in the north to come back in book two. The magician is literally a mess. Like if you know the book, he's literally just a mess. And those who have ears for Aslan, Polly and Diggory and the cab driver and Strawberry the horse who becomes Fledge. They ask him at some point, why? Like, why can we hear you and it's beautiful, and why doesn't the magician? Why doesn't he love this creation like you've made it? And Aslan responds, I cannot comfort him. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. And in this great line that Lewis writes, Oh, Aslan's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. That's the epitome of pride. If you're telling me that this is what good is, I know that. And I'm going to come up with all these ways to live and all these ways to defend myself. To make sure I get what I know is good. And we're actually hurting ourselves. And God says, I, I have good for you. If you'll trust me, if you'll follow me. The epitome of pride is not casting our cares on him, but saying to him, I got this. I don't need you. Let me carry it. Not only is it prideful, and you may actually miss out on the kingdom of God because the pride is so deeply rooted in you, but it doesn't work. It just adds more stress to your life. Like, it's not fruitful. It's not a better way. It actually makes life more miserable for you. And you miss out on the care of your Father in Heaven. Like, why would we choose to make ourselves more miserable just because in pride we want to carry it? And He tells us, give to me. In humility, cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Like, I think it would be a fruitful and profitable conversation for us this week, maybe even today, 
with people in your life, in your mission community, your DNA group? Like, how well do you do this? How easy is this for you? How hard is this for you? In what areas of your life is this easier? In what areas of your life is this harder? What does this struggle with humility and pride look like in your life? How much do you fight to carry this load versus truly casting these cares on Him? And how different would your life look if you live this out with consistency and experience the peace of God in Christ Jesus that passes all understanding? Like we celebrate communion every week, the body and blood of Jesus. He gave Himself for you. He's given you everything. Will you trust Him with everything? Will you trust Him with all that you're trying to carry? So as we bow in prayer before we take communion, I just want you to kind of in your heart between you and the Lord, let the Spirit of God do work. Just imagine those things that you're carrying that are weighing you down, that are bringing so much struggle, uh, anxiety, fear, resentment, bitterness, whatever it is. Just see those things. And then quickly see your almighty Father in heaven who cares about you. And then just see yourself taking the weight off of yourself and giving it to Him. And more accurately, see Him helping you take off the weight that you're carrying and putting it on His own shoulders. Jesus, we thank you that you've come and done everything necessary for us to live this seemingly, seemingly impossible life. A life filled with peace and not worry. Is that, is it really true? It seems too good to be true. How? How can it be true? Maybe God doesn't know all the things that there are to worry about today. Maybe he doesn't seem as powerful as he should to deal with all we have to deal with today. Jesus, help us in all of these ways that this is hard. Help us to simply take you at your word and trust you. Trust what you say. That we can cast our cares on you because you care for us. You can carry the load because it's who you are, and we can't. We're just being crushed daily. Thank you that you don't crush a someone who's already crushed. But you get down low to pick us up. Thank you that you don't keep shame and condemnation on us, but you show love and affection for the broken heart. So in the ways that this needs to be experienced more and more by the people of the crossing, Jesus, let it be true today here. In the ways that we struggle to experience that, Jesus, meet us where we are, by your grace and your spirit. Allow us to experience you this way. If that means salvation, then Jesus, I pray there will be salvation in this room today. Today will be the day of salvation as someone trusts in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins to enter into this right relationship with you.
spaces. Jesus has done everything. But in all the other ways it needs to happen, Jesus, make it happen for your glory, we pray. Amen. So we move to uh, <clears throat> communion. We now uh, get to take this.